Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific guest for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk a little bit about George Orwell, interesting life and interesting background. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries as well. It is August the 23rd, and on this day in 1927, despite worldwide demonstrations in support of their innocence, Italian-born anarchists Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were executed for murder. On April 15, 1920, a paymaster for a shoe company in South Braintree, Massachusetts, was shot and killed along with his guard. The murderers, who were described as two Italian men, escaped with more than $15,000. After going to the garage to claim a car that the police said was connected with the crime, Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested and charged with the crime. Although both men carried guns and made false statements upon their arrest, neither had a previous criminal record. On July the 14th, 1921, they were convicted and sentenced to die. <clears throat> Anti-racial sentiment was running high in America. At the time, and the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti were regarded by many as unlawfully sensational. Authorities had failed to come up with any evidence of, a stolen money, of the stolen money, and much of the other evidence against them was later discredited. During the next few years, sporadic protests were held in Massachusetts and around the world calling for their release, especially after Celestino Madeiros, then under a sentence for murder, confessed in 1925 that he had participated in the crime with Joe Morelli and the Joe Morelli gang. The state Supreme Court refused to upset the verdict, and the Massachusetts Governor Alvin T. Fuller denied the men clemency. In the days leading up to the ex execution, protests were held in cities around the world, and bombs were set off in New York City and in Philadelphia. On August the 23rd, Sacco and Vanzetti were electrocuted. <clears throat> in uh, 1961, a test of Sacco's gun used modern forensic techniques apparently proved it was his gun that killed the guard, though little evidence has been found to substantiate Vanzetti, Vanzetti's guilt. In 1977, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis issued a proclamation vindicating Sacco and Vanzetti, stating they should have been treated unjustly and had no stigma should be associated with their names. As I understand it, they, uh, the theory is that they were trying to commit the perfect crime that nobody could discover. Uh, so interesting. <clears throat> Sacco and Vanzetti, electrocuted on this day. <clears throat> Governor Ron DeSantis is crisscross Florida, touting monoclonal antibody infusions therapy as another tool in addition to vaccines to help prevent hospitalization and death from COVID-19. On Friday, announced a state-operated clinic is operating in Bonita Springs to provide the treatments free of charge. There are several uh, treatment centers around the state. There's, uh, but this one here in Bonita Springs, of course, is especially appealing, only a few miles from uh, up, up the road from uh, the Paradise Coast here. The treatment, which the Food and Drug Administration approved under emergency use provisions of the federal law, may reduce hospitalization and death from the novel coronavirus by as much as 71%. The clinic will be housed in the old Bonita Springs Library, located at 26876 Pine Avenue in Bonita Springs. It would be open from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., seven days a week, he said, and it would provide 300-plus treatments per day. He said that by early next week, there may be as many as 21 other new sites throughout the state, each one providing 300 treatments a day. We're going to be able to provide thousands and thousands of these treatments every day over and above what our health systems are already doing said the governor. Lee Health has been offering the treatment since December 2020, and since then has roughly 1,000 patients, according to health systems records. Experts say the treatment is best used on people who test positive for COVID-19 and have symptoms for less than 10 days. It is especially beneficial for people who are at high risk for COVID-19 complications, 
including have a compromised immune systems and those who are over 65 and have chronic illnesses. This includes people who have been vaccinated. Unlike vaccinations, which involve getting a shot in a matter of a few seconds, the monoclonal antibody treatment itself takes some time. First, there's two kinds of treatment, the IV infusions, one involving multiple injections. IV infusions are what they sound like. Patients are hooked up with an IV to get the infusion, which takes between 20 minutes and an hour. Patients then are monitored for an hour afterward. The shots are somewhat quicker. It's actually four injections that are administered in different parts of the body to prevent injury, uh, usually one in each arm, then in the abdomen and another large muscle areas, uh, Marconi said. And then, like the IV, patients are monitored for an hour afterward. Patients tend to tolerate them well, he said. We have not seen a whole lot of side effects with this, he said. He added that those getting the treatment but who haven't been vaccinated must wait 90 days to get the shots. I'm so grateful for uh, COVID, for Governor DeSantis bringing this to our area, he said. We're running at 110% of capacity at Lee Health for this monoclonal antibody treatment. We definitely need the additional assistance from the state, said uh, the spokesperson. I'm particularly happy about it. Of course, my choice has been not to get vaccinated. And uh, what, what I'm really appreciating of the fact is that there's a backup now. In case I do get symptoms, I can simply go up to Bonita Springs. Maybe there'll be one here in Collier, even closer soon, but irrespective. Great opportunity to get some help and keep me from being hospitalized. If you're probably in the same condition, I really, the governor's suggesting, hey, everybody get vaccinated. That's what he said. But he's providing this backup, which I think is great reassurance for people in Florida. By the way, uh, people are, whether they got the vaccination or not, they are getting sick <clears throat> and carrying around uh, COVID. <clears throat> a Florida judge in Leon County has cleared the way for parents to have their day in court over the tussle regarding face mask mandate policies. A lawsuit was filed in early August by parents uh, opposed to the governor ordering banning of school districts from imposing mask mandates without the option for parents to opt out by written statement. The judge on August the 19th sided with the parents and said they have a legal right to sue, overruling the state's arguments. The initial complaint was made by St. Petersburg attorney Charles Gallagher, argued that the governor's order impairs the safe operations of schools. In the complaint, he wrote that the governor's order took away districts' constitutional powers to operate, supervise, and control schools under their supervision. Governor DeSantis' attorney, Michael Abel, has moved to dismiss the case, but the judge, John Cooper, said that the case deserved to be considered on its merits rather than dismiss it. He said he wanted to hear the evidence in, in the case. The case needs to be heard and a record should be made, Cooper said during the hearing. I'm dealing with a good group of lawyers who will present evidence in this case, and I look forward to hearing your arguments. Uh, the Leon County judge has set aside three days this week, beginning today, to decide whether to block the enforcement of the governor's orders as they hear technical evidence on both sides. <clears throat> Pretty clear that uh, kids should not be masked up for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, they don't, apparently there's 300 kids that got COVID, but no mention about whether they're hospitalized or how sick they got or what their symptoms were. So uh, I think where there's an overreaction here by these parents. I don't know why people feel that the uh, governor or some uh, elected official be making decisions for them. They can decide for themselves whether they want their kids uh, to wear a mask. Did you see Donald Trump on Saturday night in, in uh, Coleman, Alabama? He was absolutely fantastic. He blasted Biden administration over the Afghanistan disaster, taking the stage at York Family Farms before an estimated 40 to 50,000 attendees. Trump ripped into Joe Biden's foreign policy disaster in Afghanistan. This will go down as one of the great military defeats of all time. It did not have to happen that way. This is not a withdrawal. This was a total surrender, a surrender for no reason, Trump declared. Trump said he dealt with Abdul Ghani Baradar and the Taliban's de facto leader threatening, anything that happens, we're going to rain terror on you. Don't touch why our American express and, uh, citizens don't ever come to our country, he said. Scene of those big giant planes taking off with people hanging on the sides and falling off. There'll never be anything like that. This will go down as one of the great military defeats of all time. It did not have to happen that way, said the pres uh, President uh, Trump. They understood our power and that I would not hesitate to use in defense of our citizens, and the Taliban understood that maybe as well as anybody. 
The Afghan crisis would have never happened if I was president. Our country would be so respected. Everyone respected our country, Trump quipped during the speech. Trump said the, uh, Trump said the Biden is now overseeing the greatest foreign policy humiliation in the history of the United States of America, further slamming Biden's botched exit in Afghanistan as the most astonishing display of gross incompetence by a nation's leader, perhaps as any time that anybody has ever seen, Vietnam looks like a masterclass in strategy compared to Joe Biden's strategy. The president didn't hold back. He really uh, leveled uh, Biden. And he, of course, brought up a number of other things that have happened in this economy, our economic uh, background, what's happened at the border uh, with inflation. The president really laid it all out there. He was absolutely terrific. We happened to watch it on One America News. It was, uh, by, it was uh, Trump at his best. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harton, the host of the Bob Harton Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. Among other things, they create policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. He's also the author of several books, uh, mainly on past presidents. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Well, uh, right now Afghanistan is consuming the news, and I wanted to start off by getting your thoughts. Yes, over a weekend, um, the U.S the administration seems to have recovered to some extent uh, from their initial uh, total surprise. Um, look, we're going to look back at this in many different ways. Number one, we'll say that Osama bin Laden won. He wanted the United States to come fight in Afghanistan. 
we came, fought in Afghanistan, and we lost in Afghanistan because we didn't have the will. Now, interesting question whether, you know, whether it ever made any sense and everything else like that, and probably we should have pulled out. Uh, you know, first of all, the big, mis- big mistake number one was uh, in 2001, taking our eye off the ball and invading Iraq instead of doing everything we can to, to find Osama bin Laden back then, um, including going into Pakistan if necessary. But we did that, and maybe we should have just killed Osama bin Laden and left the country. Um, but we committed ourselves to something, and we gave up on our commitment. Now, maybe it was a job that could never have been done. It's quite possible. Uh, we won't know, you know, the agreement that was made for our withdrawal was basically a surrender agreement the Taliban made behind the Afghan government uh, back. Um, maybe it was the only way to get out without Americans being shot, but that's what we did. Um, that was the agreement that the previous administration did. President Biden had the opportunity to say no, but he would have had to send back troops. In other words, by the time he took office, only 2,000 troops in in Afghanistan. To give you some sort of a uh, an idea, during the Obama administration, we had as many as 100,000. Uh, before the final pullout by the Trump administration, we had 10,000. 2,000 was certainly not going to be enough. All those people saying we could just have left 2,000 troops. That was absurd. 2,000 troops could not have defended themselves against Taliban attacks, and the Taliban weren't attacking only because we were pulling out. So uh, those were the choices. We could either have gone back in and continue to fight this, whatever we want to call this, forever war, or we could give up with what we did. Yeah. One of our problems, I think, is that we've come to the conclusion that conflicts like Afghanistan, um, you know, we kept on saying they, they can't be determined by a military solution. Uh, but that's not the case. When your enemy insists on a military solution, he got one. So the Taliban just won. They didn't need a political solution. Similarly in Syria, where Assad was going to go to any sort of means to win, and he won. There was a military solution, Syrian military solution with the Russian help. Uh, which doesn't mean we should have intervened. and doesn't mean we should have stayed. Again, it's a very hard call, and I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to make it um, on the potential bodies of additional American servicemen, but we need to understand what we did. Yeah, and um, I think most people you know, are most the, concerned about the method of withdrawal and the chaos that ensued. I think it, the yeah, uh, but that would have been there was no other choice. <clears throat> I mean, yes, look, the two things happened really wrong. Number one, there was clearly an incredible intelligence failure in not knowing that they were going to collapse the way they did. That goes to the CIA and all the different intelligence agencies. It's not like something taking place in the back corner of China. This was taking place in a place where we had an embassy of over a thousand people in it. Yeah. So the fact that we had no idea what was going on was a tremendous uh, failure of intelligence. Um, I also think the Biden administration was too slow in the sense that probably four or five days before Kabul fell, it was getting clear that the cards were falling very quickly and they should have started moving more quickly and getting the troops in and doing what they did that only began once Kabul actually fell or was falling, they should have probably started four or five days earlier. But that's what we're talking about, four or five days. That was the the, the biggest um, mistake. Um, but look, considering how terrible it is, they've managed to get most of American allies in the world to participate in this, in this uh, withdrawal venture, getting as many Afghanis out as possible. The Taliban are now giving the United States until September 11th. So that's an extra two weeks, basically, to continue to take out Afghanis and find additional Americans. So, Bernard, um, uh, help me understand, why would you take out uh, the uh, military first, leave all the equipment there, and uh, then... Ha- the equipment was left for the Afghani army. Don't, <coughs> there it wasn't an American military. It was, the, it was the equipment of the Afghan army that we had given and trained the Amer- Afghan army. I mean, what, were we supposed to disarm the Afghan army and leave? I mean... Yes, obviously, in retrospect, the fact that they were going to lose, we should have done that. But that was not the plan. The plan was they were going to continue fighting. So it wasn't our military equipment we left. We left the equipment for the Afghani army to continue fighting. So that's just a ridiculous point. Well, that's not that's a ridiculous point. That's their mil- equipment. That's now, not- you can make the argument they were never going to fight. They were never Okay, you know, that was the case. That's just something else altogether. But obviously, an awful lot of people uh, thought that they were going to fight, whether so, it was going to take them a year, two years, five years, or four months, no one thought they would collapse in three days. Why would you abandon the uh, air base there, Bagram Air Base, uh, which had several runways as opposed to one? Uh, but the runways aren't the problem right now. Bagram is further from Kabul. 
I mean, the, the point was to withdraw and 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 you know draw down your um, draw down your silhouette as quickly as possible, so that you don't you know one of the biggest problems is you know you don't want to have a hundred people left and then what happens? So you're trying to limit the locations that you're in, and the fact that multiple runways have no relevance. I mean, so would the, you... the runways are not the limitation right now in the withdrawal. The limitation on the withdrawal or evacuation is processing the people. So would you say then, uh, it sounds like you're advocating that what uh, President Biden did was just right. No, I didn't say it's just right. I say there are a couple of things that are very wrong about what he did. Number one, he should have acted sooner, without a shadow of a doubt. They should have acted four, five, six days sooner when they began to see the collapse in the other cities. They should have realized there's something wrong here. Our intelligence estimates are wrong. So that's number one. That's probably the single biggest uh, mistake. I blame the military to some extent that their contingency plans weren't in place for quicker uh, for quicker operations. Um, is he doing just right? No, it's very hard to say he's doing just just right. Um, I think he's doing okay under the circumstances, which are terrible. Um, and again, um, we created the terrible situation. Uh, you know, two administrations, four administrations. You can blame you know a whole series of presidents, starting obviously with President. Uh, Bush, uh, through President Obama, through President Tr- Trump, through um, through President Biden, none of them have had a perfect record here. Um, but neither have the American people, and neither is anyone explaining to the American people what is or what is not at stake in the world. Again, this comes back to our other discussion, which we keep on having. No one has had a discussion with the American people to discuss what should our what should the role of the United States be in the world. What do we want? What are we willing to give up for it? Uh, what are we willing to sacrifice for that role? What are the pluses and what are the minuses? No one's having an adult conversation yeah, about yeah. that at all. I guess my point is it's 2,500 troops there. They haven't lost a soldier in 18 months. There was stability, homeostasis. There was uh, you know, inertia uh, in the situation. Uh, there, and why not just maintain a base in, uh, in Afghanistan? It's strategically located. Because the whole reason there was inertia was because Trump agreed to get all troops out by May 11th, and then, then Biden ex- extended it. What do, what do you mean? That, that was the agreement that Trump signed with the Taliban without the Afghan government, that all U.S. troops were going to be out by May 11th, that we would give up the, the bases, that there would be no um, civilian assistance to the Afghan army from U.S. contractors. That was the agreement, and that the Afghan army was going to release 5,000 prisoners, and he forced the Pakistanis to release the, the person who's currently heading the Taliban, that was all agreed to with, with the, the Taliban. Now, the reason no Americans have been killed was part of the deal was that you don't kill any Americans in the meantime. Well, there were now, lots if that's of your only goal, then you succeeded. But, uh, but if the United States had said they were staying, then the Taliban would have continued, would have started attacking Americans again. There were many twenty five hundred troops weren't enough. Tw- there were many conditions uh, that the uh, t- Taliban agreed to, and uh, of course uh, there was also the threat that if they did, if they uh, reneged on those agreements, uh, there, there would be serious consequences, and I think they understood. Yeah, but they were the only the only the only part they kept was they didn't attack American troops. That is absolutely true. But they were not supposed to attack the major cities either, which they did obviously. Um, so the the fallacy that we could have kept twenty five hundred troops is 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 a fallacy because twenty five hundred troops was not enough if the Taliban was actively attacking. It's a plenty when you, if they're not attacking at all. Then, if you're using a 2,500 as a withdrawal force, then then that's what you're drawn down to. Don't forget, we had 10,000 before we started that withdrawal. 10,000 was probably enough to to maintain a balance, but with you know with some casualties. There's some serious um, problems right now. We've got somewhere. The other problem is we don't know how many people are there. Somewhere between 10 and 40,000 Americans all over Afghanistan. It's not like they're all in Kabul. No, but I don't, I don't think that 40,000 is, is an exaggerated number, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, maybe 10,000, but probably less at this point. I mean, the, those, those people are being found, and it looks like we're also conducting missions outside of the Kabul airport in order to, uh, in order to obtain them. I believe the Qatari ambassador has literally been, been shuffling Americans who are stuck in Kabul and have trouble getting past the Taliban, has literally been taking them in groups to the airport. Um, but no, I mean it's all. Listen, the fact that the that the country fell in you know in, in seven days and Kabul fell in one day, that's terrible mm-hmm. without a doubt, and it's terrible to you know the, any sort of planning you might have 
I, I, you know, I don't think anyone had a contingency plan for such a terrible situation. Let's put it that way. Maybe they, maybe it would take a month, two months. But no one thought it would fall in a day. Well, uh, was, apparently the intelligence the, failure, obviously. Well, the, there was intelligence coming from the uh, embassy in Kabul. There was, there was there was what they call a dissenting view. So a group of dissenters thought that they might form much more quicker than anyone was predicting. They didn't even think it would fall in a day. Um, but that was the dissenting view. You know, remember what the dissenting view means. It was not the consensus view. So, you know, you take the best you can get. You, you make the most most with whatever with whatever options you have. Um, again, I like I said, I fault uh, President Biden for waiting so long, and I fault both him and the military for not having a, a better contingency. If the worst case came. But I fault the intelligence agencies most for yeah. for not having any sort of you know not saying that this was a likely scenario, even a you know forty percent scenario. You know, it was like a two percent scenario. This might happen. Well, Some people believed in it. Well, Mark, uh, and that's always you know what you happened. Always have to worry about that. What happened really could have happened. Mm-hmm. What happened really could have happened. It was actually a more likely scenario than than most people anticipated. And in retrospect, obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And the fact that uh, the fact that people were paid off, the fact that uh, this is all coordinated, and you know whatever role we'll eventually find out Pakistan and had in all this will no doubt be, be part of the story. But uh, you know we should have anticipated it. Yes, if Pakistan was involved, we should have been we should have known about it. Yes, yeah. um, but we we're quite flat-footed. There's no question about it. Yeah. So uh, I think at the moment, at the moment. Uh, Considering how bad it is, I think the best—you know—the best is being done. People so, are coming out in relatively significant numbers every day at this point. In the beginning, it wasn't so so much, but now we're talking about three to five thousand people a day, and it will continue until September sometime. So uh, let's uh, let's conjecture about the possible ripple effects from this, and let's begin with China and Taiwan and uh, the other events around the world. I actually wouldn't go there. I go somewhere else. Uh, I go to the Middle East. I go to fundamentalist Muslims. I go to anyone else whose um, whose motivation is religious and believing that their religious views are what will carry the day. Um, I look towards uh, Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranians. Uh, those are the people we have to worry about, not because their geopolitical position has been strengthened, but their ideological position has been strengthened. Right. Their view that their religion, all they have to do is outweigh the United States. All they have to do is be strong and keep on going, and eventually America will give up in some form or other. The West will give up in some form or other. Those are the people we really have to worry about, I think, more than anything else. Okay, any closing uh, comments on Afghanistan before we move on to uh, COVID, what's going on? History is not going to be kind to the American adventure in, in Afghanistan. That, that's for sure. Uh, and, um, you know, the last thing I want to say is, I think I said this last week, we should have built an Afghan army made of women because the women are the ones who are the really big losers here more than anything else. The men were willing to, to give up, to um, be bought off because their lives aren't going to change all that much. It's the women of Afghanistan who are going to find themselves back in the 14th century. Quite frankly, I think that's one of the most interesting comments I've heard in the last few weeks. And I think it's a, a superb point in my mind. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's really tragic what's happened. I'm concerned that uh, right now the military is basically saying, well, we can't, we can't go in and get our people. And apparently they admonished the British for going in and getting theirs. I mean, this, this whole signal of weakness is just absurd. Well, I, I, I would wait until it's all over to find out what we did or did not do. Yeah. Just, you know, just, just let's wait until it's all over. There's certain things take place that have to be secret. Remember that. All right. Well, let's move on then to uh, COVID, what's happening around the world. Okay, so COVID around the world. First of all, we're seeing parts of the world that were not affected the first couple of times. The Delta variant is obviously um, hurting those countries. Indonesia, Vietnam is in a full lockdown. Australia, New Zealand now is having cases for the first time. China seems once again to be avoiding it, and I don't really quite understand how. Thailand, all of these places. Um, most of Europe, and of course um, the United States. Now here in Israel, where I am, um, they gave the population now anyone above 40 the boost, a booster shot. They've, it's been shown pretty conclusively that the, 
um, that the COVID vaccine begins to wear off significantly after five to six months. Mm-hmm. Um, that the protection from infection, not necessarily serious disease, um, has worn off. Uh, so at this point, about a million and a half of the population, which is probably about 70% of those who qualified, have now um, gotten the, va- the second booster vaccine. Um, it's not clear if it is helping those people. There's no question. The people above 60, uh, the numbers are beginning, the curve is bending. Um, today, in the last two or three days, for the first time, um, the number of people who are ser- in serious condition, who above 60, who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated, are about the same. Which keep in mind the fact that 90-something percent of those in the country above 60 have been vaccinated. So that means effectively the vaccine is is nine. You're nine times less likely, or nine times more likely to be. Um, become seriously ill if you have not been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, so Israel is taking that that position that they're using the vaccine almost only because there's limit, very limited other, other than mask mandates, of course, that's a mask mandates in all indoor venues. Um, but beyond that, there's very little else being done, although you have what they call um, a, a green pass. Only vaccinated people can go into um, into shopping centers, pools, all those sort of things. Um, if not, or you have to have a, uh, a PCR test to prove um, that you're in the last 72 hours that you don't have the virus in order to go into those places. PCR tests so, don't work. Hmm? PCR tests don't work. They do work. Oh, please. Uh, they, they absolutely do work. They're, they're being discontinued as of the end of the PCR year. PCR tests do work. They, but okay. Uh, I, don't want to get into, I don't want to get into the world of fake news with you, so... We'll stay, we'll stay away from that because we can't prove we, I can't prove a negative, so let's not go there. <clears throat> so, Mark, uh, the uh, right now the FDA purportedly is going to approve the vaccine sometime this week, I think, and uh, therefore. Right, I think actually t- today, today, from what I understand. Uh, yeah, and so um, the, the the issue I think is that they're moving towards vaccine, vaccinating children to go to school. What are your thoughts? Well, okay, they have not vac. Remember something. Uh, under 12 are not approved yet for use of the use of the vaccine. Um, above 12 are. Um, look, vaccination has been the single greatest tool that the world has had over the last 70 years to fight disease. There is no difference between this vaccine and any other vaccine. Like every disease, the vaccine can be, you know, greater or lesser extent effective. Um, but children also can get COVID, and now we're starting to see children who are in serious condition with COVID. Uh-huh. So, and not to mention the most important thing, in order to reach herd immunity, we need to have at least 90% at this point with the delta of the population either vaccinated or, or having gotten better. And getting better, it seems, is only good for three or four months, and after that you can get COVID again. So uh, the key is to reach herd immunity so that the virus dies. Right now... We've, we haven't done that. That's the, that's the shame, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we also have this problem in the world that so much of the world is unvaccinated, and therefore these variants can suddenly appear. And as we've seen from the Delta variant, um, the Delta variant is much more contagious and seems to be also be more deadly. So my view is as much of the world gets vaccinated, we're better off. But people have to realize that even when you're vaccinated, you're not 100% protected. If there's a lot of... Um, virus around. A lot of people have it. You can still get it even if you're vaccinated. Your chances are just better. It's an all. And all it, this is not is only get it, game, not only get know? it, but transmit it. Right. Absolutely. It's it's all it's all a game of odds. That's what people have to understand. Listen, your best odds. You'll never get COVID if you never leave your house and you never see anybody. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's a, that's pretty much a guarantee. You'll never get COVID that way. The minute you start seeing people, your odds get more problematic. If all you see is people who have been vaccinated, your odds are better. Uh, and depending on how it goes, so the, you have to. It's a game of odds. Unfortunately, we're playing a game of odds with our lo- in our lives daily. Uh, we all have to make our choices of what risk we're willing to take, and it's a risk management situation. And the only situ- the only solution that's ever really going to come, in my opinion, is when we have a cure for COVID. Mm-hmm. And that means that if someone gets COVID, we go to the pharmacy, we get whatever pill it might be or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, and that will cure COVID, and then this whole thing becomes irrelevant. 
Right. Remember, this all started. This all started with two weeks to flatten the curve. So this whole story has morphed and morphed and morphed and morphed. And uh, I, I just well, so is the virus. Unfortunately, that's part of the problem. You know, one of there's an interesting article in the New York Times today that I thought was very interesting, which basically said we've learned the limits of science, and that science uh, is an evolving, evolving situation, and this virus is, has been the challenge because information keeps on changing. Yeah. And unfortunately, usually, you know, medical professions, professionals make decisions over many, many years. And new drugs are approved after many years, and new treatments are approved after many years. Um, but there's no time for any of that. Decisions have to be made based on the best evidence that's available at this moment. I must say, Mark, I mean, uh, we've, again, run out of time before we've run out of uh, things to talk about. I will say, though, it just I would encourage you to check out the fact that PCR has been uh, declared ineffective by the CDC. So uh, this is not something me, this is not some left-wing makeup thing, <laughs> a right-wing thing. This is, uh, the CDC has declared it ineffective, so for, for what it's worth. Okay, I will check that one out. All right. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You as well. And rem- uh, it's also HistoryCentral.com's website. I hope you'll check it out. Great for kids of all ages. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app from the choicesocial.us website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. So, uh, Foundation for Economic Education, maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. We're a private nonprofit. So, when people contribute to us, uh, those uh, contributions are tax deductible. We have an educational purpose, which is to uh, inspire young people in the understanding of how free markets work. Along with that, uh, things like private property and personal character are very important to our message. We do that through the website, fee.org, online videos and commentary, and also in-person programs 
uh, around the country and sometimes abroad. Terrific organization. And by the way, you're, old, you're about over 30 years old, if I'm not mistaken. We were uh, founded in 1946, so we're more than 70 years old. Well, my goodness. So a terrific organization. I've actually been to national conferences, seeing the enthusiasm of these young people. If you have somebody in your life that's uh, high school or college age, encourage you to introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education, org. So, Larry, you wrote such an interesting piece about George Orwell, a budding libertarian. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Uh, we know George Orwell, of course, for two novels that he wrote. He wrote other things as well. He was a prolific writer, in fact. But the two novels that are best known are uh, the dystopian, futuristic uh, nightmare called 1984, which depicts life in a totalitarian society where Big Brother government uh, runs everything. And the earlier novel that he wrote in 1945 was Animal Farm, and that's the one in which the animals take over the farm in the name of equality, but turn it into a bloody tyranny. And it's really an object lesson in uh, uh, radical socialism. Boy, we're <laughs> seeing unfold right now. I don't know that we have their animals, but close to it. <laughs> yeah, in many ways. That was so interesting. So, I mean, George, well, you you made mention that he is a, a, a budding libertarian. What did you mean by that? Well, he you can't call him a full-blown libertarian because he himself never disavowed the label democratic socialist. Uh, but he was... Um, a strong advocate for uh, freedoms of speech and press and assembly. Uh, the older that he got, the more disturbed he, he was at uh, the many examples of socialist experiments that uh, degenerated into uh, uh, tyrannies. And, uh, but, you know, he died at, uh, in his late 40s of tuberculosis, so he was, I think, still a work in progress. But I believe that with a little more time, uh, he would very likely have become a libertarian because increasingly, and you see it in those two novels of his, uh, increasingly he was very critical of the authoritarian side of socialism. So I think it was only a matter of time before he put two and two together and fully understood reality that democratic socialism is a contradiction in terms because the socialist part will always be at war with the democratic part. I think such an important point, and I, I, it's so important to me because I, I didn't really. I was a, uh, I was raised in a family. My dad was an avowed socialist, <laughs> and we were uh, strongly Democrats uh, for most of my life until actually the Reagan years. So things do evolve over time. People do change their points of view as they learn and they have life experiences. It's certainly true with Thomas Sewell who uh, finally went to work for the government and said, holy mackerel, I can't believe what's going on here. These <laughs> yeah, <laughs> These yeah that often happens. And in Orwell's case, uh, in 1944, uh, just a few years before he passed away, he actually wrote uh, a, a, uh, an endorsement of F.A. Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom. And uh, in it, he noted that uh, Professor Hayek had made it quite plain that uh, you can't put government in charge of everything and expect it ultimately to be democratic because those who thirst for power uh, don't typically like competition. And so that's why uh, the socialist part of democratic socialism is always at war with the democratic part. And he said some remarkable things that stand, if you look at them standing alone, you'd have to say, wow, only a libertarian could say that. Yeah. Uh, he said, for instance, these people, meaning the certain socialists, don't see that if you encourage totalitarian methods, the time may come when they will be used against you instead of for you. Yeah, so so important. The, the one preceding that, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of history. And boy, we've just seen images of that pulling down statues here in our society, and you know, trying to really to destroy. They're not only destroying the statues; they're destroying people. Yeah, and Orwell, I think, if he were with us today, would be aghast at that, and uh, he would oppose it. It would, to him, it would smack of uh, some of the themes of his book, 1984, the attempt to erase history. Uh, instead of appreciating the best and learning something from the worst. Uh, yeah, he, he was an honest man of integrity, 
and uh, that's why I think the older that he got, the more his eyes were wide open. And if he had lived another 30 years, he would have seen his own Britain uh, uh, taken down the path of democratic socialism until it became the sick man of Europe. And then a lot of that mischief had to be undone by the Thatcher Revolution. Yeah. Another quote, uh, the real division is not between conservatives and revolutionaries, but between authoritarians and libertarians. I think that just speaks volumes. Yes, it sure does. He just really despised uh, the authoritarian impulse. In fact, uh, in one of his more pessimistic moments, he said, if you want to know what the future may hold, just think of a, a boot pressed on a man's face uh, forever. I mean, that's a frightening thought, but that's, that's the way he saw these authoritarian socialist regimes, and that's why I think it, it, would, it was only a matter of time and a little more thought before he realized uh, you know, what a pipe dream it is to expect to concentrate power, even in the name of, quote, good things, uh, and expect that power to remain restrained. A terrific article. George Orwell and the bu- was a budding libertarian. You can find it on fee, F-E-E dot org. Again, terrific organization. Introduce kids in your life who are uh, high school or college age, the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, and he's the author of uh, a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can get tickets and find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader, and his sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you, Bob. Always a pleasure, Jim. So uh, you've been looking back at the history of Afghanistan and came up with some interesting findings. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, I'm looking at the, uh, you know, there used to be a, an encyclopedia company called Collier's. It was sure. one of the, the big three in the encyclopedia world. And they put out an international yearbook every year. Uh, and I wrote the uh, banking articles for, for the, the review for, for many years. 
but in 1992, they had an article on Afghanistan by Nancy Peabody Newell, the late, late historian from Iowa. And uh, it, that was the year, 29 years ago, that the Soviet Union pulled out and Afghanistan collapsed uh, into chaos. It's a, um, a multi-ethnic country. Uh, it's very tribal. The, eth- the different ethnic groups don't get along. It has different brands of uh, the, the Muslim religion. It has uh, Sunni and Shiite. And uh, so, and each one has its backers. Uh, you have, uh, I think, it's Saudi Arabia backs the Sunnis, the Iranians back the Shiites. So, in 1992, the country fragmented into all these uh, armed groups and exacerbating the problem, uh, just like the Taliban has done today. The Mujahideen released everybody from prison, including criminals. So there was a huge crime wave and a, and a criminal gang problem. Uh, it disrupted commerce. Uh, famine entered the country, and, and uh, it, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, Afghanistan tribesmen fled into Pakistan. And, 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 uh, but it was funny, uh, from Pakistan, a lot of the um, people who, uh, of the leading uh, ethnic group went back into uh, Afghanistan. So, mm. so you had had all this cross-border uh, tra- tracking. So anyway, I, I think we're going to see some of that in the, uh, the weeks and months ahead. Yeah. As uh, Biden tries to unscramble the mess uh, that he... Uh, initiated he um, made yeah he made a terrible mess hey but you make an interesting point because my understanding is that you, you think about the taliban as a kind of a monolith but it's not apparently they're all come from different tribes and they're not in total agreement about anything that's going on uh correct i mean there will be infighting between the taliban and you know different leaders will tr- try to assert control you'll probably have the country divided into banditries where where a local leader controls the commerce and you know it'll be like um you know if the mafia ran the united states of america you know every town would have a godfather and you'd be shaken down everywhere you went so i think uh that's probably the model in store for afghanistan Mm. uh they'll get their money from selling uh drugs uh they'll get their money from the chinese who want to extract minerals from the country uh, Pakistan, of course, has a vested interest in some kind of stability there because there is a Taliban in uh, western Pakistan that wants to topple that government, and, and it's a severe problem. So, uh, and that's another branch of the, of, of the Afghanistan Taliban. So, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be uh, another uh, boiling point in the world for armed conflict and what makes it especially dangerous is that Pakistan has all those nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that uh, Pakistan has pretty much financed the Taliban in this, in this effort up for the last 20 years. So we, what's interesting is we send money to Pakistan. Pakistan gives the money to the Taliban. So we've been funding both sides of the fight. <laughs> yeah. I, and you know, I personally, uh, am not a fan of Pakistan. I, you know, although uh, it's argued to the contrary, I think they had to know that Osama bin Laden uh, was living in their country. Oh, absolutely. So, so, uh, so yeah, Pakistan is not a friend of, of America. Uh, but, but again, I mean, I, I think the um, if we have a um, place where a nuclear war is likely. It's probably in that area between Pakistan and India, mm-hmm. you know, as the situation deteriorates. If if the Taliban were ever to take over uh, Pakistan, you you would have to expect that India would would use a first strike uh, nuclear strike yeah. to take out that adversary. I think if Pakistan has a couple two hundred twenty million people or something to that effect, with about one point three billion, if I'm not mistaken, in India. So India certainly is a a much more rich, strong nation than uh, Pakistan, but again, both nu- nuclear powers, which is which is kind of interesting. 
So I, I think you're right. <laughs> that could be uh, the area where we see the first nuclear uprise, which would be a shame, quite frankly. Now, I'm amazed. I mean, uh, you know, the Afghanistan situation has parallels with uh, Biden's handling of the situation at the Mexican border, in which he created a huge uh, surge of illegals uh, with his rhetoric and his policies. So, um, so I mean, these are two uh, massive failures by uh, Biden, and yet his... Uh, his uh, cheerleaders, uh, I'm thinking of Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. who's their political expert, are claiming that uh, Afghanistan will do little damage to the president uh, going forward because the American public is fixated on COVID and, and uh, the vaccine rollout to younger America, Americans and that Pakistan is merely a sideshow. Uh, I disagree. I think Pakistan has done enormous damage to the president, his credibility, his, uh, his, the people's perception of his uh, ability to run uh, any program, let alone the country. Absolutely. And night after night, he's being beat up now on television. He's being beat up in the, in the very liberal Washington Post. I mean, a lot of Democrats have turned against him because he's created a massive humanitarian crisis. Well, plus, uh, he's, he's also s- suggested that well, we're going to get people out and it's not going to be Americans first. I mean, uh, you know, there's a time in our history, not so long ago, where if somebody were stranded someplace, you would go and get that person at all costs. You know, I'm talking about an American citizens. And uh, now, he, he his first uh, words suggest that perhaps the American citizens are not as important as others in, in this uh, operation. So uh, I think he's lost the respect on the world stage, quite frankly. Well, he has. He's also lost control of the operation because we don't know that the people they're flying out are actually people who work for the troops or if they're American citizens uh, because he's created such a massive panic that almost anybody in uh, Afghanistan, an ordinary citizen, uh, with a with a carpet bag is heading to the airport to get out. So yeah. it, it's just it's just a. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get all the Americans out. We will never get all the contractors out. A lot of undeserving people will be uh, rescued by yeah. virtue of the Biden fiasco, and I think it will do enormous damage to the uh, Democratic Party in the in the midterm elections. Now again. His, his true belief, Biden's true believers are saying, no, uh, Americans are more worried about uh, COVID right now and, and the vaccine. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. And quite frankly, he doesn't have a base. I don't know if you saw uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, event on, uh, in Alabama on Saturday night, but there's forty to 50,000 people there just absolutely so pleased to see him, so, so pleased to hear him. He doesn't, uh, on the contrary, uh, frankly, Joe Biden doesn't have a base, so uh, his popularity is plummeting, and it's not going to level off someplace where the base is. It's because there is no base, quite frankly. Uh, right, and, and, and his, uh, his first disastrous decision in, uh, to uh, pick uh, Kamala Harris as uh, a VP is also haunting him. He's a... Uh, I see him getting beat up again in the liberal press for her because her antics, I mean, uh, she's, she's, um, she's sort of like the Jack court jester. She is. Uh, she is just a disaster, quite frankly. I'm not sure that he actually selected her. I think it was Barack Obama who made that selection. But irrespective, it was a pretty poor one. And uh, they're going to have to live with it, frankly. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here in the show. And to remind our listeners of your two great murder mysteries. There's so much great reads. Follow the leader and shake the money tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had fun. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. We'll find out what's new with Boo. Seton Motley, the founder and president of less government. And my wife Linda will be with us. She writes, uh, greetings from paradise. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>